0: So tonight is week four of Dumb Things Smart Christians Believe, so thank you for being back for that. Uh, Some of you uh, will chuckle at the title of some of these as we go through because you may go, well, I've believed or maybe even believe some of these. And um, One of the reasons that I wanted to do this series is to understand uh, what we sometimes very casually take for granted as truth in our lives may not in fact be truth. It may be something that we've heard. It may be something that uh, we've even heard in church, but it may not, in fact, be truth. I'll read you a quote from uh, Larry Osborne, the gentleman whose work I am stealing. Um, I give him credit, so it's not really theft. It's more uh, extensive borrowing. Uh, Over the years, I've canceled and worked with many people who have made life-altering decisions based on what they perceived to be biblical principles, only to discover too late that what they thought was biblical didn't come from the Bible at all. Most of the time, they were victims of a spiritual urban legend, A spiritual urban legend is just like a secular urban legend. It's a belief, a story, an assumption or truism that gets passed around as fact. And admittedly, the consequences of some spiritual misconceptions aren't particularly devastating. But far too often, the consequences are devastating. Think of the disillusionment that sets in when someone writes off God for failing to keep a promise that he never made. Or the despair that follows a step of faith that turns out to have been a leap onto thin ice. But whatever the case... I encourage you to examine each one with an open mind and an open Bible. So a couple reasons why I picked this material. Number one, if you're a note taker, here's your first blank, to encourage us to look to Scripture to test all things, to test all things. And number two, to remove the disillusionment that comes when we rely on promises that God never made. You ever met anybody that relied on a promise God never made and they were a disappointed discouraged, and sometimes very bitter person. Anybody ever met somebody like that? Um, Many of us have maybe even been there where we hung our hat on something that wasn't really true. So our schedule, uh, the first week we looked at uh, faith can fix anything. The second week we looked at forgiving means forgetting, and a godly home guarantees godly kids. Remember, these are the myths. So if you believe these, there's a website at the very bottom of your handout. You can go and you can listen and even read all of the notes for each one of these lessons. Week three was God has a blueprint for my life and Christians shouldn't shouldn't judge. Tonight is Everything Happens for a Reason and Let Your Conscience Be Your Guide. And next week is my favorite of all five. God brings good luck, a valley means a wrong turn, and dead people go to a better place. So tonight we start with Everything Happens for a Reason. And when I say this phrase, many of you get this look on your face. (laughs) Because you go... Where is he going with this? Because I'm pretty sure I believe this, but I may not know why, right? Anybody kind of sort of thought that when you saw this list of things? I've got it. I see two one-third hands, right? Kind of like, here we go. Um, this is the picture. My, my family and I, we like to watch 19 Kids and Counting. Uh, it's one of the few shows on TV that's actually got some positive role model and example in the homes. Um, the oldest child uh, of the 19 has just left for Washington, D.C. to take a job there. And this is their youngest, the, 19, the first youngest child, uh, in the back of the car. And we were watching the other night, and I just happened to click pause on the DVR, and this was the frame that we stopped on. And my family, we just rolled laughing for like five, because this is, I mean, I, I didn't make this up. This wasn't photoshopped to squeeze the baby's face in, or I mean, it's just, The kid was looking just like this, and nobody made a comment about it. And I'm going, there should be some commentary here. But this is what many of your faces look like when I say this phrase. So Larry Osborne, when he writes this chapter, starts off with a story about his wife. And he tells this story, a very pivotal time in his marriage where his wife was diagnosed with cancer. And it was bad. And they weren't sure if she was going to make it. And he had some exceedingly well-intentioned church members and dear friends and family members of his come around and say to them things like, God must be up to something. God doesn't make mistakes. You must be very special for God to trust you with this. Won't it be great to see how God uses this? Isn't it good to know that everything happens for a reason? And he writes, he says, in one sense, they're absolutely right. No matter what happens, God is in control. And please, if you, if you don't get anything else from tonight, the sovereignty of God is true. He is in control. He goes on. He is king of the universe, and he is good. But that doesn't mean he's the direct cause of everything that happens. And it doesn't mean that everything that happens is something that he wants to happen. And it certainly doesn't mean that everything he allows is good because God didn't cause Lucifer to rebel. He didn't cause Eve to eat the forbidden fruit or David to sleep with Bathsheba. He did not kill Abel. He did not build the Tower of Babel or force the crowd to cry out for Barabbas. He didn't coerce the Roman soldiers into killing Jesus. Those who carried out these evil deeds bear full responsibility for their actions. They can't blame God. Adam even tried. It didn't fly. You can look it up. So the question Larry Osborne asks is, where did we get this idea? And like so many of our other dumb things that smart Christians believe, this one actually originates with a very well-known verse in the Bible, Romans 8:28. You've heard of this verse? How many of you have heard a sermon on Romans 8:28? How many of you have heard 10 or more sermons on Romans 8:28? Look around. See, this is it. It's a very popular verse to preach a sermon on. So what does it actually say? It says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And the problem is that many people read the Scriptures way too fast. You ever been guilty of this? You're doing your daily Bible reading, and then you read through, and you go, whoa, that can't be what I think it just, I need to slow down and focus and really drill in here and make sure I've got this right. Osborne says, On the surface, it seems to imply that everything that that happens is part of God's greater plan, that life is like a giant jigsaw puzzle that will make sense once all the other pieces are in place. It doesn't say that everything that happens is good. It simply says that God is at work in all things. Here's your next blank. God can and will accomplish His good purposes no matter what. And there's a lot of safety and comfort in that, right? Right? One of the things that I hope you leave tonight with is a greater sense of the control that God has and the love that He has for us because it is beautiful. It is spectacularly beautiful. And a lot of people think that this verse applies to everyone. So here's my first question. Does this verse apply to everyone? Mm, It doesn't, does it? You ever uh, seen these infomercials on television? Whether they're selling some product, it, uh, it, uh, it does this, it does this, it does this. And wait, there's more. If you buy now, you order now, you can get two. You just pay the shipping. shipping and handling. And they're almost always, the shipping and handling is in little bitty font at the bottom of the screen, right? Have you ever stopped television and read the bottom of the screen? There's a couple words that usually follow At the bottom of the screen, it says, Some restrictions apply. Same is true with this verse. Who does this verse not apply to? Well, it says, We know all things work together for good to those who love God. How does the New Testament define love for God? It defines love for God as obedience to his commands, right? You love God, you are obedient. This is the the proof of your love. The second piece, to those who are the called according to his purpose. What's an easier way to say that phrase? The believers, right? The Christians. So, for the person that you work with in the next cubicle, who is going through a pain that is greater than anything they have ever experienced in their life, that does not know Christ, this verse is not for them. that sounds harsh, doesn't it? It almost sounds like, well, well, that seems like it's something special. It is. There are privileges for being a child of God. This is a big one. I can rest in the knowledge that my God is good and that He loves me, and he has something special for me that is not for everybody else on the planet. You say, well, that sounds exclusive. Uh Uh-huh. It's very exclusive. It's so exclusive, in fact, that he calls the path that these people are on narrow. Now, I guarantee you, the next time you hear the word narrow on television, it'll be in a negative sense, right? Because only those narrow-minded, yep, I'm very narrow-minded. I want to have a laser focus on Jesus. Guilty. Sorry. Actually, no, I'm not sorry. I'm excited that I I want to have a laser focus on Jesus. That is good. But this applies to Christians who love God. And how do we define love? Obedience. Obedient believers. These are the restrictions that apply. Osborne's got a great quote. He says, If we live in high-handed disobedience in some area of our life, there's no blanket promise that God will step in and fix the mess our defiance creates. We like promises, don't we? I like guarantees. I have life insurance, homeowner's insurance, car insurance, accidental death and dismemberment insurance. I hope I'd never have to invoke that. I mean, it's just saying that dismember? I mean, good gracious. That's my mom. She thinks Every joke I tell is hilarious. I love having her in the room. It is so encouraging. We have all these types of insurance to protect, right? To make us feel safe. And what do we drive down the road? Well, some of you drive. I don't. I drive down the road in a tank. So please do not pull out in front of me. Many of you drive down the road in machines that have 17 airbags. I heard that number on television this week, last week. 17 airbags what are you expecting to do? Drive off of a cliff? You need 17? This is an amazing amount of safety and protection because we want to be safe, right? And the reality is the safest place in the universe is in the hand of God. And that's the truth. So, what are some things that can happen when we assign God creatorship for everything that occurs in our life. Well, here's Osborne's quote. Those who assume that everything that happens has God's fingerprints fail to distinguish between what God allows and what God causes. What God, here's your blanks, permits and what God prefers. And these are two different things. God will permit a great host of injustice and inequality. God will permit sin... To a point. God will permit heinous acts of violence. If you don't believe me, He's documented some in the scriptures. Write Leviticus 19 in your notes, and you go study that one and tell me, yeah, everything that God has happened to us is, is, uh, is good and pleasant and wonderful. No, you, you'll throw up after reading that chapter. It's awful. What God permits and what God prefers. So here's a couple things that. Uh, don't blame God for these things. Self-inflicted wounds. If you go on YouTube and you type in, police officer shoots himself. There's a video of this. This guy is in a classroom giving a lecture to a group of high sco- middle and high school students, and uh, and he's got a gun. And he's teaching them the perils of mishandling weapons, especially... When you're under the influence of drugs and alcohol. And this guy does what they teach you to do on the first day of gun safety course. Make sure you know whether the weapon is loaded or unloaded. Is that not the first thing that you do? Other than, here's the name, we we know the instructor's name, and here's how you check to make sure it's unloaded or loaded. Because you have to know that piece of information. And he points the gun down, and it goes off. And he literally, they have it on tape, literally shoots himself in the foot. This is a self-inflicted wound, right? Many times, and we have all been here, maybe not physically shooting ourselves in the foot, but we have all made a sinful choice that I can't blame anybody but me, right? The devil did not make me do this one. I very consciously walked out on this plank, turned around, and started sawing. You've done this? Anybody done this? Nobody? You guys are much better than I am. Has anybody done this? Yes. Thank you, three people that are honest. Wonderful. So self-inflicted wounds. Don't, Don't blame God for this. Second, life in a fallen world. Sometimes bad things happen because we live in a fallen world. And to some degree, this is Osborne here, we're all caught in the backwash of Adam's sin. And any attempt to downplay the universal impact of the fall or worse, the assumption that Christians have a magic bubble of protection fails to square with Scripture or with life. You've heard of Murphy? You know who Murphy is? Yeah, You know Murphy. Yeah. Murphy comes to my house too. Yes. Um, do you like Murphy? No. And sometimes we think, God, why did you, why would you, come on, really? I mean, really? And the reality is, and this is Osborne's quote, Murphy isn't God's emissary. He's Adam's legacy. Right? Things are broken. It's broken. We live in a broken world with broken people and broken relationships. We're broken. That's one of the beautiful things about Jesus. He's a fixer. What do carpenters do? They fix things. They take something that was in one shape and one form, and with love and care and time, turn it into something else. I cannot imagine a better occupation for my Savior. Is that beautiful or what? They fix things. Here he goes on. He says, When it comes to the consequences of the fall, we aren't offered immunity, we're offered eternity. It's beautiful. God has a plan. For this whole thing. He knows how he's going to wrap it all up. I am not an eschatological expert. And I don't want to spell the word either. Um, I don't understand and have consciously said for several years, I don't get how revelation works. And it's not revelations. It's one. It's about Jesus and they but one of him. So you got to have it singular. I don't get how all that fits together. I'm trusting God knows All these, uh, what's his name? Jimmy DeYoung. He comes and he sets up the microphone stands. And he confuses me every time. And there's only like four things up here, right? So it can't be that complicated. And things happen in between the microphone stands, right? Some of them are very good. Some of them are very bad. And then, right, at the end. Yes, thank you for reminding me. I know on this side of the microphone stand, good things, right? I'm good with that. I don't understand the horns and the um, the eyes, the sheep with the crazy number of eyes. I mean, I don't get it. I really don't. But I'm trusting that the answer on the other side of all of this, that my God has this figured out, and he does. And it's beautiful on the other side. We are offered eternity. We take our sin and we knock and we go, God, I'd like to give you my sin. Oh, and I'll take Jesus' righteousness. Hashtag winning, absolutely, right? I mean, can can you imagine a better trade-off than this? There is nothing better. Some of you can't believe I just did that, right? That's okay, Joel. That was for you. That was for you. Um, So a couple other things. What about foolish decisions? These are not sinful things. These are just dumb things. And, And we've been here too, right? Osborne's got a great line. He says, picking the wrong stock can wipe out a portfolio. Picking the wrong partner can derail your business. Picking your nose can ruin your social status. <laughs> you, you know, you've seen somebody and you went, oh my, did you just, oh my goodness. They... It matters, the choices that we make. It's ludicrous to blame God or assume that he'll jump in and fix every idiotic decision we make. The good news is that God promises to keep us from, the good news isn't, I'm sorry, that God promises to keep us from making lame decisions or to fix whatever we break. It's that he promises to continue working for our eternal good no matter how many dim-witted judgments we make along the way. I cannot thwart his plan. Yes. I am so excited about that because I am so stupid on so many days. (laughs) (laughs) I I knew somebody was going to do it, so I might as well put it out there, right? How many of you here at the Hickson campus this morning? How many of you knew that the story that Daryl was talking about the truck was me? Yes. I walked outside one morning. I was supposed to go to Knoxville that day for work, put the key in the truck, click, 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 click. Now, not a mechanic. Understand that's not good. It's 6.15, 6.20? Who are you going to call at 6.15? (laughs) Daryl. Absolutely. Um, I actually didn't call Daryl. I walked back in the house and said, Jules, I got to take your car. And I timed this well, and she's not here tonight, so I can tell this. Um, Anna Grace was standing right next to her, so she couldn't tell me what she really wanted to say. (laughs) How many, nobody's ever done this, right? Had Had that conversation with your spouse in front of the kids so that they wouldn't, yeah. Sorry. I, dumb, stupid decisions. We're just talking about them, right? So she smiles. <sighs> okay. What am I going to do? I'll work on it. Well, that was the wrong thing to say. Let me tell you that. Um, get in the car. Go meet my boss. We get on the road. It's 635, 640-ish maybe. I put a note on Facebook. Let's see what happens. Hey, I forget what the exact words were. Truck didn't start. Jules needs a ride so that we can get Anna Grace to school. Can anybody assist? Ten minutes. I had three offers. 6.40 in the morning? You mean to tell me my God has put me in a place where people are watching me at 6.40 in the morning? How cool is that? Some of you are going, that's kind of weird, Jim. I think you have some stalkers. And some of you are going, that's awesome, the fellowship in the community, right? It's beautiful. So I get to Knoxville. Actually, uh, Daryl comes over and takes Santa Grace to school. He pulls up, and what, what was in the back of the vehicle? A with a he, he was pulled in a trailer with a riding lawnmower. And when you're in seventh grade, <laughs> there's things you don't want to have. Attached to the vehicle that's dropping you off at school, right? <laughs> Drops her off. She's just, you know, and he's threatening to honk the horn to let everybody know they're there. I, I wish I'd have had it on camera. I wish I'd have had it on camera. So I get, to, uh, I get to Knoxville, and actually, we're almost to Knoxville. It's probably 745, and Sean McGarvey gives me a call. You know what your son asked? He said, Jim, I'm off today. I didn't have any plans I would love it if I could take your truck and go fix whatever's wrong with it. How cool is that? Some of you are going, I want your Facebook friends, right? (laughs) (laughs) My Facebook friends are going to be in heaven. And that's pretty cool. So dumb decisions. Uh, The dumb decision was I left my lights on. That was the dumb decision. And uh, there were loose cables and it didn't work and it was my fault. So you say, Jim, why is this so important? I'm glad you asked. That's a great question. Uh, we can get angry at God over things that we do. We can assign blame to God for something that was squarely on my shoulders. A couple of other reasons. We can gloss over sin or we can be irresponsible. Because if we have the belief that, you know what, it's, it's, all, gonna, it's all just going to work out and the details aren't important and and he's in charge, and and just I don't have to worry about any of those details then. Easy now. I've still got accountability in this thing. This is still important. So Osborne asks a question at the end because some of you are really having trouble with this still, and, and that's okay. I, I'm, I'm with you. Um, he said, "Can a bad thing ever be a good thing?" So can a bad thing ever be a good thing? What would a new the preeminent central figure? Of the entire Bible, his name is Jesus. All right. Can a bad thing ever be a good thing? Was the crucifixion a bad thing? Yeah, it was awful. It was heinous. It was horrible. But it turned out good for me. And God worked through that. I don't know how he makes that work. In his economy, that's square. Is there an Old Testament example that you can think of, of some bad stuff that happened to this guy, maybe by his brothers? Joseph, right? Some of you are going, what about Joseph? All right. Here's what he says about Joseph. When Joseph's brothers eventually came to ask him for mercy, despite their despicable act of selling him into slavery, he responded with these famous words, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish now what is being done, the saving of many lives. But notice that Joseph didn't call his brother's evil actions good or even necessary. He didn't say that everything happens for a reason. He simply pointed out that God was at work despite their evil intents. The fact is, just as it was for Joseph, it's nearly impossible for us to distinguish which of the painful events in our lives result from God's orchestration, which ones he's planning to use, and which ones he'll overcome in eternity. In the meantime, it doesn't really matter. Every trial, here's your blank, or hardship calls for the exact same response. Obedience. We get so hung up in trying to figure out the why. Well, why did this happen and why did that happen? When I was a kid, I put together puzzles, lots of puzzles, like lots and lots and lots and lots of puzzles. I was allergic to almost everything God made naturally, so I spent a lot of time indoors reading, doing computers, and working on puzzles. I was that guy that you knew in high school, okay? Really? No laugh, Joel? Nothing? Oh. I did this last week with Billy, so it's only it's only fair. I know you did. That was awesome though. That was fantastic. All right. What is a puzzle? You're like, it's a puzzle. A puzzle is a collection of things that are broken. And it's an attempt to put together the broken pieces to understand the bigger perspective. And we spend so much time trying to put together the broken pieces, right? And the reality is that's not what God's called us to do. Can you point me to a verse in the Scriptures that says, God has called me to understand all of His ways? (laughs) I don't think so. No. He called us to obedience. No matter what the situation, no matter what the scenario, no matter how many thousands of pieces of puzzles you are looking at. No matter, I used to take them and mix them up. Take three or four puzzles and mix them up. It was awesome. let see if I could figure it out. Some of you are going, I can't imagine anything I'd rather let not do more than that. That's just horrible. I loved it. Try to figure it out. And I took that same mindset through most of my life. And sometimes it still crops up. It's, I want to go figure this out. I want to know why. I want to know how God's going to use this now and later. That's not what he's called me to do. He's called me to be obedient throughout the whole process. And that's it. So you might ask, so what's the rest of the story? Because Osborne's wife had cancer. And they had a lot of good, well intentioned people that kept coming up and saying things that didn't sound so well intentioned to the hearer. And Osborne said that a moment of clarity hit him when he was looking at some things that his children had made him when they were younger. And they were things that weren't perfect, they were things that were damaged and wrinkled and and sometimes grossly missing the mark of the assignment. But they were made for him by somebody who loved him and wanted good for him. So what they did is every time they heard one of these really hurtful comments from somebody that really loved them a lot, they would picture this person as their child, bringing them that picture that they didn't get all the colors in the lines, but they spent that time for them, and they really cared about them. So when you go through this, when we go through this, Know that community is better, even if it hurts sometimes, even if we don't get the words just right, even if sometime this week these words, everything happens for a reason, pops out of your mouth, and we attribute blame to God for something. Guess what? He's got the forgiveness option, and it's beautiful, and I'm glad that he's adopted us into his family. Amen? All right, so that's one. We've got one more to go. The second is let your conscience be your guide. Who can tell me who this fellow on the screen is? Jiminy Cricket. When did Jiminy Cricket first show up? Does anybody know? He's in a movie. Pinocchio. Does anybody know what year the movie Pinocchio came out? 1940. Won an Academy Award. This song that he sang for the best song, actually. What's the song that he sang? Let your conscience be your guide. Here's the words. Did I put the words on your handout? We're not going to sing. I, I don't sing uh, uh, solos, rather. Craig heard me sing well ago, and he, he was doing all he could do just not to scoot away, but he did good. When you get in trouble and you don't know right from wrong, give a little whistle. Give a little whistle. When you meet temptation and the urge is very strong, give a little whistle. Give a little whistle. Not just a little squeak, pucker up and blow. And if your whistle's weak, yell. Jiminy Cricket, take the straight and narrow path. Sounds great, doesn't it? And if you start to slide, give a little whistle, give a little whistle, and always let your conscience be your guide. And many people hold true to this theology. A lot. Osborne says there's a myth of a trustworthy conscience. He says many of us have been taught to trust our conscience as a God-given internal indicator of right and wrong. Faced with a tough dilemma, we turn to it. If we have peace about our decision or action, read that as an absence of guilt, we assume it must be okay. Otherwise, our conscience would surely have let us know something was wrong. And the reality is there's a difference here. There's a difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. You know the difference? A thermometer is a factual indication of a truth. It says this is the temperature, right? We're familiar with thermometers right? A thermostat can be set to trigger an event based on input from the owner, right? How many of you have your air completely off this time of year? Because I know there'll be some of you. We'll start with you guys. So We're going to exclude you from the population, all right? How many of you set your air conditioning above 70 degrees this time of year? And how many of you below 70 degrees? Thank you for those hands. That's awesome. Um, I work at TVA, so we appreciate that. That's good. Um, why does your air come on at below 70 degrees? It's easier to sleep? No, no, no. Not, not why do you like it. Why does it come on at below 70 degrees? Because you have this thing called a thermostat, right? And you set it there. And the thermostat will react to the owner's input. So here's your blank. The conscience is not a thermometer telling us right from wrong. That's black and white. It's a thermostat telling us our perception of right and wrong. And this is different. This is set. Our conscience, here's a quote from Osborne, doesn't tell us when we're violating God's standards. It tells us when we're violating our standards. Ooh. You mean that thing I've been counting on is flawed? Yep. The good thing is that the conscience is actually relatively easy to reset. Think about how many times you're, in your life your conscience has been okay with something or not okay. Okay with something or not okay. Right? This, this thing moves, which is one of the reasons it's such a lousy indicator of truth. Truth doesn't fluctuate right? Truth doesn't fluctuate. Over time, our consciences can change based off of our knowledge. Sometimes it even reverts to prior knowledge. Now, I have four books on stage with me tonight. Uh, Actually, I have five. This is the book that I'm borrowing from. I have Wayne Gruden's Systematic Theology, I have uh, A Messy Faith. Uh, it's a commentary on Job. I have Mark Driscoll's Doctrine, and dumbs Things Smart Christians Believe, and my Bible from college. Now, I was brought up by those two folks right there. Thank you very much. Um, thank you for choosing life. I appreciate that. I was brought up that in any stack of books, if the Bible is present, the Bible is to be on... You've heard this, too. How many of you, and I won't do it. I'll just pretend to do it. This bothers. Does this bother anybody? My mom's hand goes up. I've got half a dozen folks over here. Yes, it it probably. This bothers you like this close, doesn't it? This is your conscience going. Ah. But that can be changed. You can train yourself not to care about that. You can. This book matters to me. I have based my life and my afterlife on its contents. For me, it's just a sign of respect that it ought to be on top. Okay. If that's not what you believe, guess what? That's okay. Right? How many times do we get spun up over things like this? you ever gotten spun up over something like that? Yes. You say, Jim, what do you mean? Well, our conscience is too, far too pliable to be counted on as an absolute authority. So what does the Bible say? 1 Corinthians 4.4. 4. I don't know that I put this on the screen. I don't think I did. If you've got your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians 4.4. 4. We're going to finish very quickly. Don't worry. Some of you are looking at the clock. You know what? 1 Corinthians 4 4. Who's writing 1 Corinthians? Paul? For I know, so Paul's speaking of himself here, I know nothing by myself. Yet I am not hereby justified, but he that judges me is the Lord. I know nothing by myself. Different translation says, I am not conscious of anything against myself. This is, and I feel blameless. Does anybody have anything about feeling in their translation? The perception that they have, that Paul has about how he experiences life. And the reality is, I can feel however I want to feel. And that's largely irrelevant. Right? Because whether God judges me as guilty or innocent, is not based on my feeling. If it was based on our feelings, everybody would get into heaven and Jesus wouldn't matter. Right? Because I feel like I should go to heaven. Well, then you're in. Can you imagine the great white throne judgment like that? (laughs) I think I should go to heaven. Fantastic. We've been waiting on somebody to say they felt like they were going to go to heaven. You have a seat right here. Who's next? Who wants to give the exact same answer? This implies Jesus doesn't matter. Does this make sense? You resonating? Okay. So, if Paul said and implies here that just having a clear conscience isn't enough, maybe it shouldn't be enough for me either. Now, a couple things here about the fall. The fall corrupted everything about me. And that's hard to say because I don't like saying I'm flawed. I like saying I'm tall and handsome and good looking and have a fabulous beard. (laughs) And then I woke up, right? Um, The best I can do is filthy rags. My sin nature, this is something I wrote several years ago, my sin nature has damaged me beyond my understanding. I am capable of being deceived even by myself. It's good for me to read every once in a while that I'm, I'm capable of being deceived even by myself. I wrote several verses in your notes here. Some of them I explained. The, the red text are the verses. The blue are the uh, addresses for the verses. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, Romans 7, 11, Sin deceived me. First Corinthians three eighteen. Let no one deceive himself. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 15, 33, Galatians 6, 7. James 1, 16, Do not be deceived. Galatians 6.3, he deceives himself. Ephesians 5.6, 2 Thessalonians 2.3, 1 John 3.7, let no one deceive you. 1 John 1.8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we are not capable of being deceived, why the New Testament spends so much time on it? Is this topic irrelevant or does it matter? Of course it matters. We can be deceived. My capacity for being deceived overwhelmed me. And I am deceived by my capacity to be deceived. Because I sometimes think that I can only be deceived by little things. And the reality is, I can be completely off target. So you say, Jim, can we be completely saved and simultaneously thoroughly human? Yep. Absolutely. I ran a lawn mowing business in high school. And uh, I had... 15 to 20 yards at one point when I was a senior. Made a good bit of money doing that. It's, a, it's hard work, but uh, paid for a good chunk of my college with that. And every single spring, at the beginning of yard mowing time, something would happen to my hands. What would happen to my hands? Blisters. And the blisters would occur, and then what would happen? Calluses. And for a week or two there it was very painful, sometimes even three weeks. It was very painful. But at some point, I didn't feel that anymore because the calluses had built up and they were actually there. I I think they're probably there to tell me I'm doing it the wrong way. Um, But they were there to stop that pain from continuing all summer long. right? And then we would move into fall and into Christmas and my hands would feel different because something was gone those calluses were gone. And then in the spring, those calluses would come right back. And it was this cycle of calluses and no calluses, calluses and no calluses. And this is very representative in my life of my conscience. It can go through periods of sensitivity, callousness, and back to sensitivity. It's a painful yo-yo of emotions. It's very painful. But it should also teach me something about my heart. I'm talking to me. I'm not talking to you guys. If you guys want to listen, that's great. It should teach me something about my heart. It's deceitful and cannot be trusted. There's even a verse about this. Jeremiah 17:9. The heart is deceitful above all things. Really? All things. And desperately wicked. And then he asks a question. Who can know it? And what's the answer? God's the answer. How awesome is that? He's posed a question that the author himself cannot even answer. But he knows the one who can. And this is why our conscience should not be our guide. Because if what makes me, me, can do this all the time, that's not a good standard for truth. But what makes God, God, is holiness, and he is consistent. His truth never changes. And that gives us something that we can bank on that is far more sure than any conscious, callous, or experience that we have. Osborne's got a quote. He says, Check out any prison. You'll find that it's filled with people who let their conscience be their guide. With dire consequences. But sadly, we can find the same thing in many churches. Your conscience can be genuinely clear because it is genuinely broken. I can't tell you how many times somebody will come up to me after Sunday school and say, Jim, I've been praying about this thing, and, and here's this thing. I think I should insert heinous sin here. Okay, I mean, something that is clearly, spectacularly laid out in Scripture to be wrong. And they finish the sentence with, and I have clear conscience. I have, I heard it over here, peace about it. Well, of course you have peace about it. Your heart has a callus around that spot, and you can't hear God at this time. You need someone like me to lovingly take a spiritual two-by-four and beat you in the brains until you come to your senses, you fool. Right? Right? And is that what I say? No. Um, Here's what I generally say. Okay, so before you make that decision, can you read something for me? Yeah, absolutely. And I get out my phone, and I'm flipping through. Please, dear Lord, help me find this verse quickly. Help me find this verse quickly. Yep, okay. I need you to read this whole passage like 20 times. And let's have this same conversation next week. And here's what happens sometimes. They go home, and they read the Scripture. And the Scripture is this amazing stuff. Because it takes these calluses, and it just works on them. And it just works on them. And it's beautiful, because God doesn't leave us like he found us. I am so excited that he doesn't. You excited God didn't leave you like he found you? Oh, man, has that made all the difference in the world? And the Scripture gets in, and it just pounds, and it just pounds, and it just pounds. And sometimes these folks come back next week, and they go, I'm embarrassed I even asked you that question. Good. I was embarrassed you asked it too. And I didn't want to be mean, but good, gracious, alive, no. I have had this question asked to me at the end of my Sunday school class. I think that even though my divorce isn't final, I should be dating other people right now. what are you doing? This isn't even close, right? Callous. Guys, we've all been there, right? We've all been there. So what's it good for? Because I've just talked a long time about what it's not good for. Here's what it's good for. Osborne says, when rightly understood and functioning properly, our conscience is a valuable early warning device. It's a great red light. Stop! It's a pretty good yellow light. Time out. Just let's think through this. It is a lousy green light. Don't trust it for a green light, guys. Don't let your conscience be your guide, and don't get swallowed up in the heinous, awful, terrible, very bad, no-good theology of Jiminy Cricket because it doesn't work. It won't get you there. Now, you'll notice that there are two numbers at the very bottom of that page. For those of you that haven't already uh, sealed up your notes forever inside the front cover of your Bible, lots of verses to read in this space, lots of homework, like your five-page papers to be single-spaced, ready for... Oh, that's what homework is, isn't it? Sorry, my dad would be disappointed if I didn't get homework, so. Um, so... Everything happens for a reason. Eh. Let your conscience be your guide. Eh. Next week, God brings good luck. I'm going to take a sawed-off double-barrel shotgun to the prosperity theology. Okay? You just get ready. We're loaded for bear. A valley means a wrong turn. I was talking to somebody right before the service tonight. Are there more valleys in the world or mountains in the world? There's more valleys in the world. And dead people go to a better place. Not always. Not always. So I hope this has encouraged you. At the beginning of tonight, I told you I wanted you to leave with a bigger view of how much God loves us and cares for us. I hope that's where you are. So stand with me if you will. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. Dad, will you close us in prayer tonight? I don't think I've ever gotten to do that before. Thanks.